with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, Future Tools will try to answer any automotive questions you may have. Why don't you go ahead and give us a call? Our number is 291-6901. And the area code here in Baton Rouge is 225. So you can use that to reach us from anywhere inside the continental United States this morning. There you go. And we always very pleased when you do because it gives us something to talk about. There you go. <laughs> Instead of us talking back and forth all hour. That's right. You know, I thought that today we would talk a little bit about fuel injection and i know okay. we've touched on it off and on but right. never specifically on that but as always if you have a question about a different topic you're never limited to what we're talking about just give us a call anything you might have most definitely be glad to try to kind of point you in the right direction help and you out if we can that's right and right now is the perfect time to get a live answer there you go <laughs> <laughs> i was Don't, looking for another adjective there, but yeah. it just kind of lost me you kinda know the only way to get a live there you answer, go but, yeah, talking about fuel injection, a lot of people, when they think of injection, they think of a fairly new technology. technology because right. I guess on automobiles, it, it came in around the mid 80s, yeah, relatively 80s. new, at least the electronic injection that we know of today. They had rudimentary forms of mechanical injection far back and even some electric or electronic type uh, type yeah. of, of injection. I know Volkswagen experimented with that way back. Right. I don't know exactly when, for sure in the 70s, possibly even in the 60s. I don't know. But injection is not really a new technology per se. I think it was developed, you say it was 1923, I believe. Somewhere, I think a Swedish. Uh, I think there was a patent for fuel injection back in 1896. Wow. Yeah. So but not it, a lot of work was done no. on it. That was kind of more of the philosophy of it. Right. And then they started developing it and started building different types of it around the 1920s, 1930s. You can conceptualize something, but not work out all the details. Correct. I remember reading that, I think Leonardo da Vinci had conceptualized a helicopter type craft uh -huh. back in his day. Right. Of course, he didn't have the motors and the, the wherewithal to, servos to, to and build the gyros, it. Right. But, but he did. And I guess once you conceptualize something, then working out details is probably the smaller part of it. Sure. And as technology increases and kind of comes along, it makes things a lot easier in many, many cases. And that was the case with injection. The first injections that came along were basically built for diesel engines. Right. And these were mechanical injections. And they had a pump, which was a positive displacement pump. It put out enough pressure to where it could inject the fuel directly. And... The injectors worked off of either a cam or something like that. They had some method to open and close them, or they stayed open all the time and just the nozzles or a poppet or whatever. I guess there were several different forms of it. And that worked okay, I guess even pretty good. Well, it worked real well in aircraft because they were only at an idle or wide open throttle. That's right, and they didn't really have to idle that well because they could run the RPM up high enough. You're right. Kind of like a race car. You know, they had injection. I remember aftermarket injection. Back in the early 70s, I was running an endural injector mm -hmm. on, on one of my race cars, and it was basically just eight stacks, and it had eight throttles in it and one pump with eight injectors. Correct. And with that, because there was no electronics involved and the barometric pressure changed all day long, you had a barrel gauge that you had to read your barometric pressure. When the barometric pressure would change, you would change what they call the pill, which was a little ball bearing sort of thing that basically, was in the return line. Right. Basically, it was a restriction you put in the return line to either richen or lean the mixture right. out, depending on what the barometric pressure was. Right. You could return more, return less. Of course, the less fuel you return, the more the richer, richer the injectors, so the richer the mixture. 
and that worked okay because well, it worked great on race cars. Yeah, I mean, we were idling at three thousand RPM, so idle was not much of a problem. We were and running, we were sitting ten thousand RPM, sure. and it was just wide open all the time. Didn't have to worry about being tame or drivable or having flat spots or exactly. lags and all stuff that modern injection has to deal with. So again, these are the ways that all this sort of kind of evolved along. And the biggest stumble is that when you want a car to operate in a civilized manner, mm-hmm. you want to be able to start the car and you want it to start right away. You want it to idle smooth. You want it to be able to accelerate through all the ranges. Well, that's a very, very varied set of circumstances. And mechanical injection just could not deal with all of those things very well. Right. GM tried mechanical injection back in the 50s. Corvette, the 57 Chevrolet. Right, the 283. Right. They had some form of it at one time. And, I mean, most of them guys that, that had one, the stories I've heard, they got pitched for a carburetor yeah, or two carburetors. Or they just know, worked or, on them constantly. It right. was strictly a performance option. And it worked okay for performance, but it just wasn't very civilized. Correct. The average person wasn't going to like it a whole lot. And with mechanical injection, that's sort of the limitation. Now, a carburetor, on the other hand, is sort of very forgiving because the airflow through the carburetor, it goes through a Venturi. Mm-hmm. The faster the air flows, the more the more fuel it draws in. Right. So it's sort of self-regulating. As long as you've got the jet size pretty correct, then it's going to self-regulate. And at an idle, it's almost like two different devices Carburetors don't idle through the jets for the most part. They have a little idle jet or slot down mm-hmm. under the throttle plates, and the vacuum of the engine is drawing the fuel in at that point. So at idle, where you have a high vacuum, you can draw more fuel in to make it operate properly. And they had two little jets that you could screw in and screw out to set the idle, get the mixture where you wanted it. So it worked out fairly well. The biggest problem you had with the carburetor was the transition between the idle and the and, run phase. Correct. Because when you push that pedal to the floor you Those had throttles open wide oh a bunch of air ran in but there was no corresponding fuel immediately to overcome that so you always had a a lag right and a lot of people who have carburetors today will feel that and they don't really understand what it is <laughs> and the way they overcame that was there was a little mechanical pump inside the carburetor that known was tied- as a, yeah known as a accelerator pump right and it was tied to the linkage of the carburetor that's right so that when the throttle moved at all it would squirt gas into the throttle bore which would make it go rich so it wasn't a perfect fit mixture but it got it over that lag that that, that dump and what happens today is that people who have carburetors you know carburetors were designed to work on gasoline sure not ethanol a lot of folks who have carbureted cars the ethanol will get in there and it'll eat that accelerator pump up and when it does, they start getting that characteristic, Duh. you mash the gas pedal, the car almost starts to die. Stumbles forward. Stumbles and then, forward, and then it'll catch up and go. Right. And it's because it's not producing enough fuel, and there's a little diaphragm will shrink and start to leak or whatever things happen to it. But that's when you get that old characteristic lag mm-hmm. or, or drop. I, I can and, remember working on carburetors back, back in the early 80s mm-hmm. you know they were that was one of the major complaints yeah was the stumble right off acceleration yeah that was one of the biggest things that or you couldn't get them to idle or couldn't get them to idle smooth or if you got them to idle smooth and you got they rid were, of the stumble then when you got down into it it started cutting out right <laughs> right they were something to yeah they just weren't real forgiving because they were mechanical and when you build something mechanical no matter what it is you can engineer it for a certain set of circumstances sure. and because the world we live in is very fluid. It changes constantly. 
they eventually had to go to a carburetor that was so complex, when, especially when they started worrying about emissions and mm-hmm. those sorts of things. The carburetors became so complex that they were just unmanageable. Right. And that's when they needed a different solution. Let's take a phone call here. We'll be back right. a whole lot more about that. We've got David online. Good morning, David. Good morning. Yes, Good morning. Hey, uh, I have a 99 Lincoln Continental. It's front-wheel drive. It's got the air suspension. Mm-hmm. I've replaced the airbags and everything, so it's in real good shape. But here lately, when I turn right, I'm hearing a clunking noise out of the rear end on the passenger side. Any idea what I might look for in that? Hey, the most common thing that we see, David, of course, there's a number of things it could be, but the most common thing is the, does it have a stabilizer bar on the back? Most of those did. I'm not sure. Check and see if there's a stabilizer bar back there. Either the little bushings that hold the bar to the chassis or the little links that connect the bar to the rear end. Because when you turn, and there's that bar, when you're going straight, it's just kind of moving up and down. It doesn't really care. You know, it doesn't Mm -hmm. do anything. But when you turn, then the bar is twisted, which is the purpose of the bar to keep the car from leaning in a turn. And okay. when you start to load it like that, those little links, if you've got some slack in them, they'll start to make that conk, 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 conk kind of a noise. I tell you, the easiest way to check for that, David, won't cost you a nickel, just a little bit of time. Go in the back of the car, make sure it has a stabilizer bar, because not everyone had it. But if it's got that stabilizer bar, just disconnect the two links temporarily and get some duct tape or something. Just tape them out of the way where they just can't hit anything and go drive the car and see if the noise is gone. Okay. You know, it's just an easy way to, to eliminate that from the system. You know, if the noise is still there, then obviously hook it back up. You forget about that. It's something else. But that was the most common thing that we used to see. A couple of other things where the shock absorbers attach at the bottom. There's a rubber bushing. That bushing can wear out or the bolt can be loose, and it can make that noise. Also on the top, there's four little cushions on the two shocks, one on the bottom and one on the top and a nut and stuff on top. If those bushings get loose, they'll make that same noise. But that's about it for the suspension because it's pretty rudimentary in the back. It just kind of rolls along. There's not a whole lot of gear back there. The only other thing that I can think of, just kind of be sure it's not an exhaust noise because the tailpipes and all are kind of tight where they run through there, and the exhaust can hit on something and make the same sort of noise. Generally, you can just lift it up, grab the tailpipe, and just kind of move it, and you hear where it's hitting something. It may be uh-huh. close all the time, but only touches when you, you're going to a curve or something. But okay. that would probably be one of those things, I would think. All right. Yeah, I went back and you know, pushed up and down on it, and I couldn't, <clears throat> I couldn't simulate it. Noise. Yeah, you're going to probably need to get it on a lift where you can get under the car and, like I said, grab the tailpipe by hand and just move it up and down and see if it hits anything or, or just physically inspect it. If it's close somewhere, make sure it's not a shiny spot. You, you, you'll, you'll see where it's been hitting if it's been hitting on something. But I know the exhaust made a fair amount of noise on those because it was so tight, particularly the cars that had dual exhausts. They were really tight in there. But that exhaust runs up over that rear axle, and it's got a number of spots where it can hit if all the hangers aren't got a broken hanger or anything allow it to hit and make that noise. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Okay, Thank man. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. We've got to take our first little break, but we will be back with a whole, whole lot more. You guys hang in there. If you ever plan to move west, Go for my car's general inspection. I take it in once a year so the team at Agco can catch any potential problems early. And they remind me of important upcoming maintenance. Things like oil changes, changing my timing belt, tire wear. Yeah, a general inspection each year would be a great thing for my marriage. 
Paul, thanks for bringing Marie in for her general inspection. Overall, she's in great shape. I did dial back her shopping system to save you a little money, and her nag button was stuck, so I loosened that up so you can work on your golf game and not those honeydews. As far as preventive maintenance, you've got a big anniversary coming up in April, so put that on your calendar. And I'd suggest flowers for no reason and more compliments. And Agco saved me thousands of dollars. Paul? Paul, are you listening? Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry. Sounds like I need to take Marie, I mean my car, into Agco for a general inspection. Keep your car on the road longer. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. Just join us at the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldersan, with Mr. Brian Terry. We certainly appreciate you spending your Saturday morning with us. If you got a question or a comment about the show, you give us a call. We'll be glad to try to help you out and point you in the right direction. And we've got Percy who's been patiently holding. Good morning, Percy. Hey, good morning, Lewis and Brian. Good yes, morning. Sir. Hey, guys. My wife drives an 06 Nissan Murano, mm -hmm. and the brakes, like the right rear brake kind of when you kind of push that pedal a little bit, kind of get a little crunch sound. Okay. So I'm getting the brakes evaluated at a, you know, a big box store just to see what's, what it is, right? Okay. But... What's the total brake service? Well, there really, like, there really what, what is, do you guys do? Yeah, there really is no brake service per se because every car in the world has been driven different ways. It has different things that have happened to it. So brakes have kind of evolved to a point where it's almost like everything else in a car. Each one has to be diagnosed because there's so many different systems on there. There's no one yeah. set of things you can do. First, some people say, well, I'm going to go in, I'm going to grind the rotors down, I'm going to put a set of pads, I'm going to do yak, 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 yak. Well, yeah, that, yeah, that's what they that, say. That may not be necessary at all on some cars, and far more than that are totally different things may be necessary on the other car. And that's uh -huh. the reason I really don't like people, and I'm not going to stereotype anybody, but I don't like places that have menu pricing. In other words, they have a service that they're trying to sell you. Because that service may not be what you need at all, and yet, for instance, a crunching noise when you stop may not even be in the brakes. The brakes may okay. just be bringing it on. Let's just say, for instance, you've got a lower control arm bushing in the rear that's the rubber separated. Well, when you hit the brakes, what happens is that the wheel wants to stop, the car wants to move, and the stress is going to go through that bushing. So they could go in, grind the rotors down put pads on it do da 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 and in my experience they put cheap aftermarket pads which aren't as good as the ones they took off they leave the shims out and yak 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 so they screw your brakes all up and you still got your crunching noise because it's in the suspension you see what i'm saying okay what i prefer to do is find someone competent go in and say look what i've got is a crunching noise in the right rear when i apply my brakes and then mm -hmm. have them tell you what it is that they need just because so so often we get in there and we find something like I said, like the bushing or, mm -hmm. or whatever. Another thing, depending on if it's got disc brakes or drum brakes in the rear, it could be something like a caliper slide could be sticking. Well, that's okay. just a matter of taking out both lubricating the caliper slide, putting it back together. The pads may be fine, may not need any of that stuff. So okay. to go in with just a set service and say, well, we're going to do this. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of like saying, well, I've got a headache. Okay, we're going to go do brain surgery on you. Well, now, wait a minute. <laughs> it may be a tooth cost. You know? <laughs> Who knows? Okay. You know? So, yeah, you're way better off to go to someone competent and just give them the complaint. What I always tell people, what I need to know to fix your car is, number one, what is it doing that you don't want it to do when you pick it up? Or two, what is it not doing that you do want it to do when you pick it up? And if you tell okay. me that, or better yet, demonstrate it to me, let's go drive the car. Okay, you hear that? That's what I want fixed. Then I can examine the car, and I can tell you exactly what it's going to take to fix that problem. Because many, I can, many times for a lot less than what 
some other service might have cost. Right, and like Lewis was stating, you go in there and asking for a service, you're going to get that service. Right. They're not going to go right. looking for a noise. Yeah. They, okay. So you kind of brought yourself into this situation, but you made the right call by calling us to learn right. how to go about doing it correctly. Yeah, I think you'd be far, far better off because, I mean, brakes, I've seen cars come in and they didn't need any more than maybe the, the caliper slides lube and put back together. Other ones are going to need a set of pads, and that's all they're going to need. Another one may need yeah. pads, rotors, calipers. The caliper, uh, the pr- the caliper, caliper could be sticking. Right. It may be seized up, which yeah. in that case, the yeah. whole caliper has to be replaced. Right. It could be all kinds of things because every car has been through different circumstances, and, and they've all been, you know, the braking has been different on them and all. And then even one make or model, for instance, a Chevy pickup truck may have seven different braking systems on it in the same right. year model. Right. It's, it's just so much diversity in there that there's no one service you're going to be able to do that's going to really do you a lot of good. Yeah, I knew I've been knowing that I'm getting close to the end of the brake life, so I, mm-hmm. I know that. Mm-hmm. And I know you always say get the OEMs, which if I need them, I'll go to Nissan and get them. Right. So that's, you got really good advice mm-hmm. there. And can I ask you a second question you about bet. my other car? Sure, go ahead. All right. I drive a 07 Saturn or X. R with a 3.6. Okay. Well, my early this year, my check light engine came on. I had it checked out by a guy I really like. I live in Reedley, mm-hmm. but I work in Fresno, and that's like 30 minutes away. Okay. So I would go to him, but I'm 30 minutes away as my wife's car. So. Yes, sir. But the uh, catalytic converter in my car, he checked it out, and he said that it's pretty much failing. And okay. in California, you got to do small. Right. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, if it passes small, yeah, I just keep driving it. No big deal. But mm-hmm. if it uh, if it doesn't pass smog, then you should get it replaced. And he wasn't sure about possibly getting like an OEM catalytic converter mm-hmm. to replace it because it's such a, you know, some GM parts are still out there. That's right. Not. Sometimes you have no choice. You have to go aftermarket because the original has been discontinued. And uh-huh. even with aftermarket, there are different levels of aftermarket. For instance, right. you've got just a universal welding converter, which in my opinion is absolute junk. No use to even go there. But then okay. there are companies that make a direct fit converter that is it's built just like the original it bolts in. And you've got to be kind of careful because not all aftermarket converters will meet the emission standards and are not allowed to be sold in California. Gotcha. California emissions are much tougher than the, the rest of the state. Tell states. me about it. Yeah, I know we get California cars in from time to time. Even though they were maybe delivered to Louisiana, they were built to California standard. And uh-huh. if that's the case, then in order for me to get check engine light, it has to meet California standard because that's what the computer is requiring. And those, you generally cannot put an aftermarket converter on. It just won't work. Okay. All right. Well, All right. I'll look at that next year when it's time. Okay, Percy. Is the weather cooled off any up there? Oh, yeah, man. It's I'm so happy those 100-degree days over with. <laughs> it's uh, it's, it's going to be like in the 60s now. We're finally in like uh, fall, autumn weather. Yeah, now. you're back to you California, know, real California weather. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, great. Hey, thanks for calling, Percy. Thank you. Have uh, a good day. You bet, man. Bye-bye. All right, 291-6901 is the number. If you want to be part of the Automotive Hour, we'd certainly love to have you. You know, that's a very wise thing to call because so many people fall for that because yep. so much money is spent marketing automotive work as a commodity which it simply is not a commodity it's exactly. a custom thing every single car is so and today even much oh, much yeah. more so than it was 20 years ago but what happens you've got a lot of shops that they're just not geared towards diagnosis they're no. not geared to find anything if you go in and tell them what you want 
They're they just can a set do of that hands. thing, right? Yeah, a pair of hands. And if I go in and say, okay, I want a brake job, whatever that might be. Well, to them, that means they go in, throw a set of cheap aftermarket pads, throw Cut the rotors away, on. grind the rotors down below discard, put it back together, hand it to you. Right. Now, they haven't cleaned the fluid out, much less cleaned it out before they start it. Haven't lubricated the caliper slide because they don't even understand how all that works. Cut your rotors below discard. The surface finish is way too rough. Now they got to be replaced. Because they're making noise. The shims and, are gone. Right. Now you got to try to find a set of shims to put in there. So if that's what you want, that's fine. But that is not going to necessarily address any sort of a problem no not at all much like the old term tune-up and in the past if the car the fuel mileage was off and it was idling rough or whatever you go and you say i want to tune up and they'd screw a set of plugs in change the points set the timing adjust the carburetor gave it back to you and because cars were so simple back then sometimes that would fix the problem well most of the time that's what was wrong with it yeah well you know, what it was, was wrong. wore out right you know set of spark plugs back then every thirty thousand miles oh every ten thousand you were changing spark plugs right. because they were wore out but mm-hmm. today's cars are not like that. No. And if you go in and tell someone to do a tune-up and they screw a set of plugs in and do whatever they do, you get the car back and you've got exactly the same problem you had when you brought it in, mm-hmm. you can't blame them. All right. That's because, what you asked for. Well, they told you up front, that's the kind of shop they are. Right. They're a menu price shop. It's like McDonald's. You know, give me a, bur- uh, <laughs> uh, right. a, a Big Mac and a filet or fish sandwich or whatever. If you go in and tell them what you want done and they do what you tell them to do, then, you know, shame on you if it doesn't fix your problem. Mm-hmm. What you have to do, and what's a much, much better way to handle that, is number one, find a shop with a diagnostic culture. Sure. Go in and say, what I've got is this problem. What I'd like fixed is this, or what doesn't work is this. Mm-hmm. And like I said, if you will tell them what it is it does that you don't like, you don't want it to do when you pick up, or what it doesn't do that you do want it to do when you pick up, then they're going to ask you questions to be sure they've got the proper information they need and to fix the problem. You've got to be able to answer those questions as honestly as possible. Well, yeah. Because if you don't, you're going to send the tech off in the wrong direction, and the wrong direction costs money. Well, that's right. And because human communication is probably 50% effective at best, you have to take some time and make sure that the guy understands or mm-hmm. girl understands what it is you're saying. And he, on the other hand, or she has to do the same thing with the customer. Right. I will generally ask a question three or four times and maybe ask it in different ways mm-hmm. just to be sure I'm getting, you know, people come in all the time and say, my car won't crank. Right. So, okay, now when you turn the key, what, does it, what do? does it do? Well, it won't crank. Okay, well, that means that when you turn the key, you don't hear anything at all. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just dead. Well, no, no, it, it makes a noise, but it won't start. It won't okay. run. Well, see, now we're at, the more real thing is the car won't start because the cranking system and the, the ignition and fuel injection, all that are separate systems to a mechanic. Sure. To average person, it may sound subtle, but the difference is huge from a diagnostic standpoint. And he's going to spend an inordinate amount of time checking things he doesn't have to check if he doesn't know what he's going at. Exactly. Particularly with an intermittent problem. Oh, man, those, instance, are, those are the worst. Well, if, for instance, sometimes you turn the key and it does nothing, and you tell the guy, the car, sometimes my car won't start. Well, he's trying for a no start. He may turn the key and it doesn't crank. Well, he says, okay, well, it doesn't crank every once in a while, but apparently the guy knows about that because he didn't complain about it. I'm looking for a no start. So mm-hmm. it starts every single time, but sometimes it doesn't crank. Well, he's going to tell you, well, I couldn't duplicate the problem. Exactly. Because you didn't get the right complaint. So you know, you got to just be careful to make sure 
that you do get the right complaint. And like I said, the best shops are going to kind of try to drag that out of you. And at very least, they may send a tech out there with you. That's right. Let you show them what it is. Exactly. You can't articulate exactly what it is. Hey, one more quick little break. Be back with a whole lot more. Kate, we can shop tomorrow. I'm off to Agco for my car's general inspection. I take it once a year so the team at Agco can catch any potential problems before they become huge repairs down the road. You know, things like small rattles and shakes can become issues and you never can be too... A general inspection each year would be great for my marriage. Kate, thanks for bringing David in for his general inspection. Overall, he's in pretty good shape for an older model. I replaced his sensitivity regulator, which was getting a little worn. His not listening to my partner and leave the seat up lights were both about to come on, so I fixed that. As far as preventive maintenance, more fiber, less beer, and watch his portion control, especially on the weekends. And thank goodness for Agco. Kate? Kate, are you listening? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Sounds like a general inspection from Agco can improve my marriage. I, I mean vehicle. Uh, improve my vehicle. Keep your car on the road longer. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. Just join us in the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Lewis Aldersand, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Go and give us a call. 291-6901 is the number. And should you happen to miss your prime opportunity today, we can get your questions answered. You can always go to our website, get your questions answered that way. The address is agcoauto.com. That is A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. There's a contact bar on each and every page. Just click the button, fill out the little form, and send it on in. There you go. Get an answer back to you, certainly within 24 hours, most time a lot sooner. Just, just depend on, on when. My proximity to a computer, <laughs> <laughs> my ability to answer. There you go. Yeah, that's the way to get your questions answered. And if you have an automotive decision to make, then a lot of times it just doesn't help to get an unbiased opinion from someone who maybe looks at it from a different perspective than mm -hmm. you might. Because sure. just like our caller earlier, sometimes we can save you a whole lot of grief because, believe me, we have seen it. Oh, yeah. I would say 50% of the work that we do is probably rework where someone has gone somewhere, had something done, and they're not real satisfied or it just didn't work out for them. Right. And now they're having to bring it in and approach it from a different perspective. And that's one of those things that applies at one time. You had complex electronic problems. That was pretty common. But nowadays, even something as simple as a noise or a brake problem or sure. anything, it almost applies unilaterally across the board because cars are just so complex, so interactive. And so many things can cause a problem that is seemingly totally unrelated mm -hmm. to what the cause actually is. Exactly. You know, we get that quite a bit where something will be going on and the cause of that problem is somewhere else in the Yeah, seemingly the totally system. unrelated. I know we see that a lot with, say, automatic transmissions where the transmission won't shift or won't shift properly. And when they do bring it in, you find out they got a battery cable with high resistance in it. Right. Or maybe the air conditioner is not working. It's blowing out of the dash when it should be at the floor. It's blowing out the floor when it should be out of the dash. And you'll find something like a bad alternator or a weak battery causing that. And you wouldn't think that would be related at all, except that it is. Well, and it's all electronic. Exactly. You know, in, in a technician's mind, everything is electronic today. Mm -hmm. So if something is not operating properly... It is, it is operating, but it's not operating properly. You start looking for things, like you said, voltage drops, bad cables, high resistance in places. Right. Any type of 
electrical disturbance in the system anywhere is going to cause problems anywhere. Sure. So or you everywhere. have to do a base electrical profile pretty much before any other diagnosis with almost anything. Because if you hadn't established that, yes, I do have the right voltage in this system, it is getting to the proper places, all the grounds are connected, you could spend an inordinate amount of time to come back to that. Oh, sure. Sure. You know, an, an eight, a battery, 12-volt battery with 8 volts in it will crank the car. Yeah, it'll still it, crank. It'll still crank and mm-hmm. run. But the computer is associated that with 12 volts. Right. It, it knows what it's supposed to be getting is the battery voltage 12 to 14 volts. Right. If it doesn't get that, it's assuming it's getting it. But if it doesn't, boy, it, it starts messing well, with it. Totally, it starts messing totally it up. Totally freak out. And moreover, most of your reference type signals are 5 volts. Correct. So when the 12-volt so drop, drops, the 5-volt drops proportionally. Exactly. So you really, really uh, driven this computer crazy at this point. So let's go back to our phone lines with Mike. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Good morning. Now, I have an 08 Tundra, and occasionally when I hit the starter, I will get a brief screeching sound. Uh, any ideas what that would be? Man, Mike, the only mechanical part of that system is the starter itself. And unfortunately, that one, I think, is it's the V8 Tundra? Yes. Yeah, unfortunately, that starter is underneath the intake manifold. Mm-hmm. So you can't readily get to it to diagnose it. But, I mean, the only two mechanical things you have is the starter and the flywheel. And, you know, and there's everything else is electrical on it. So there's nothing to make a screeching noise. The noise is while it's cranking that you're hearing it or soon after it starts? As it's cranking. And it's just very briefly. Yeah. Man, I would bet the starter Bendix has a little clutch in it. That's the gear that swings out and goes into the flywheel. There's a little clutch built in there. And what it does, when the motor starts initially, that gear is still in the flywheel. So it's going to spin the starter much faster than it is designed to run. So there's a clutch that allows it to slip when that occurs to keep from tearing the starter up. Eventually, or pretty quickly, it can pull that gear back out of the flywheel when you release the key. The solenoid releases, and it pulls it back out of the way. So it's most likely going to be something either in that little clutch in the starter Bendix drive or possibly the shaft on the starter may be dry, and it's just, you know, as it slides back and forth, it's making that screeching noise. But almost surely it's going to be something in the starter. How many miles do you have on it, Mike? Oh, bunches and bunches. (laughs) You know, if you got bunches and bunches of miles, and it's the original starter, I probably, if I was going to go to the extent of pulling the intake manifold off, I would just replace the starter. Sure. And I'd put a Toyota starter back on it. Okay. Just because inevitably starters fail. They don't ever really last the life of a car, although they do last a long time nowadays. And in the scheme of things, they're just not that expensive to where it's something you couldn't, you don't want to be stranded, and you don't want to tear the flywheel up. Yeah. So I think the overall lowest cost would probably be just to go in and replace the starter and, I mean, when you're in there, when you take the intake off, you can look at it, and you may get in there, and you may find the bolts are loose in the starter, and the starter is wiggling on the block making that noise. Well, okay, then you can decide, yeah, I'm just going to tighten these bolts down and go on about my business, or, well, I'm here, I'm going to change the starter. But do not buy an aftermarket rebuild starter because those just do not work on that vehicle. The Toyota ones aren't that expensive, and... You know, Basically, that one that one has lasted bunches and bunches and bunches yeah, of miles with no problem. With no problem. So and it's a lot of labor to get to. Yeah. It. So you want to put the best part you possibly can while you're in there. All right. Well, I kind of have a feeling that's what you were going to say, but mm-hmm. I was hoping you had a quick and easy. <laughs> that didn't happen sometimes. Yep. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much. Appreciate it. All, All right. right. Thanks, Carl. Man.
Bye-bye. I, you know, before all the phone calls, we were talking a little bit about fuel, fuel injection, injection. And, right. and the way fuel gets into cylinders and such. And we talked a little bit about carburetors and the inherent problems they had because they were mechanical. And what happened as they evolved on just before the advent of fuel injection, there were electronic carburetors out there, right. variable Venturi carburetors. These were all attempts by the engineer to get the carburetor to meet the emission standards and they be were a little more civilized. Yeah, they were so complex. Though. They were. I mean, carburetor was already complex the way it worked and the little ports and everything in it. But when they started adding electronics to it, boy, it really it, it just really exploded. got out of hand. Yeah. And unfortunately, all the people who got stuck with those cars that had those systems on them, because they knew they were fixing to go to fuel injection, they didn't spend a lot of time trying to work all the problems out. Exactly. It was kind of a get by for two or three years. And those cars were just a nightmare. I yeah. remember shops would not even work on them when they would come in. Sometimes they oh, we can't fix it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it and was to that point. Yeah, it, of course, I think most of those cars are now gone. But the point is they were trying to adapt a mechanical device to a varied situation, which they couldn't rightly do with the technology of the day. Uh -huh. Now, since then, what has happened with the proliferation of electronics and the advancement of electronics, there are sensors that can tell this fuel injection system pretty much every condition out there right you know it knows the barometric pressure it knows, it knows the, when it changes it knows the coolant temp it knows the coolant temperature it knows the idle air temperature correct uh, it knows the throttle position it knows the demand for power it knows all these things from the various sundry sensors that are on the car and the computer has just a whole bunch of programs in it the computer is not one thing it has a series of programs running mm -hmm. depending on the input from the sensors it changes the way that the fuel injection operates now even more to the point it has an air flow meter which measures the amount of air going in and it has two air fuel sensors measuring the exhaust coming, coming out. out so it can fine-tune itself for instance it calculates the exact perfect mixture and the way it changes mixture is by varying the time the injector is open or off the seat mm-hmm it's an electronic solenoid or electrical solenoid that pulls a pintle off of a seat. The fuel pressure pushes the fuel into the port. Same. And the amount of microseconds that pintle stays open will govern how much fuel goes through into the car. Mm -hmm. Now, if it says, okay, we're too lean, it will simply command more time off seat. And that's called fuel trim. Right. It can have positive fuel trim or negative fuel trim. And the, the operating temperature is temperature the, the operating parameter mm -hmm. is zero right but it fluctuates 10 points well, either the way, way all the way up to 15 points without setting a check engine light it can add about 15 percent additional fuel or subtract about 15 percent additional fuel for instance let's say a fairly small vacuum leak occurs well the first thing happens we've got unmetered air entering into the engine so the fuel air meter is going to be uh, the air uh, flow meter is going to be confused because there's more air here than there should be right well when the two air fuel sensors say hey wait we're leaning out here then the computer's gonna say okay let's add some additional fuel so it starts adding one percent two percent three percent four percent until it brings it back within parameter that's why if you ever notice a car with a leaking intake manifold when the car is cold the system's in open loop there's right. the air fuel sensors haven't come online it yet. has a predetermined Set, temperature. Set of, it has a predetermined set of parameters that will run in a cold position. They call that open loop. Right, and that's where it's running. 
So if you have a vacuum leak, the car is going to miss and shake and shudder and bad. all that when it's cold. When it warms up, you say, well, the problem goes away. Well, it doesn't go away. It just gets covered the up. The computer is covering it up by adding additional fuel to compensate for the extra air coming in. Exactly. Same exact thing happens when you got a fuel pump that's maybe weak. Now, you don't have enough fuel pressure, so the engine starts to lean out. So what it will do is it will add additional fuel mm-hmm. to cover that up. Now, fortunately, on the modern cars, you can go in, you can read fuel trim right. with a proper scan tool. If you see a car that has a misfire when it's cold, it's adding 15% additional fuel, you pretty much know you're looking for a vacuum leak. Sure, somewhere in the point, system. At that point, you go in, you smoke test the engine till you find the leak, and then go right on from there. So not only are these things good from a drivability standpoint, they're also valuable from a diagnostic standpoint. Exactly. Now, what happens all too often, unfortunately, is that we have a situation like this where the car has a misfire when it's cold. It runs idles rough when it's cold. Well, the check engine light pops on because the fuel trim exceeded 15%. Mm-hmm. Well, first thing the owner does, he disconnects the battery and reconnects it. Well, you just cleared everything out that you needed to fix the problem. Now, even worse, they drive the car to the shop, and they say, my car is idling rough. Well, the guy gets in it. It's warmed up because you drove it in. Sure. It idles perfectly fine. So if the guy is a true diagnostic technician, he's going to call for more information. He say, wait a minute, I've driven this car. It seems to be idling fine. What are you talking about? If the guy is not quite that good, what he may do is say he'll pull a couple spark plugs out. Well, they're worn. He may see the air filter's dirty. He may see some things. Well, let's change all this. Okay, well, now, technically, those things were needed anyway because they were worn or dirty or whatever. They just weren't the solution to your problem. Right, and the next morning, you get up, Well, you spend 500 bucks. You get the car back next morning. It's doing the exact same thing. Well, Mm -hmm. now you're mad at him. Well, you know, you gave him the wrong information. You didn't tell him what you were trying to fix. You didn't give him the parameters under which the situation occurs, and you cleared the codes out. And not only that, the technician, once he gets into the codes and starts reading the data that's coming through, he can look at the readiness tests. Right. And he can see if the readiness tests have been cleared. Right. That is a great indication that the battery's been disconnected. Right. And so at that point, he knows he doesn't have the information he's going to need to fix the car. Right. Hey, one last quick little break, and we're back with a whole lot more. Gotta run, Paul. I'm heading to Agco for my car's general inspection. I take it in once a year so the team at Agco can catch any potential problems early. And they remind me of important upcoming maintenance. Things like oil changes, changing my timing belt, tire wear. Yeah, a general inspection each year would be a great thing for my marriage. Paul, thanks for bringing Marie in for her general inspection. Overall, she's in great shape. I did dial back her shopping system to save you a little money, and her nag button was stuck, so I loosened that up so you can work on your golf game and not those honeydews. As far as preventive maintenance, you've got a big anniversary coming up in April, so put that on your calendar, and I'd suggest flowers for no reason and more compliments. And Agco saved me thousands of dollars. Paul? Paul, are you listening? Oh, oh, yeah, sorry. Sounds like I need to take Marie. (laughs) I mean my car, into Agco for a general inspection. Keep your car on the road longer. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back to the final segment of the Automotive Hour. I'm Lewis Altazan, president of Agco Automotive. Got our lead tech, Mr. Brian Terry, right here by the side. Between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Go and give us a call. Number is 291-6901. And we were talking a little bit about fuel management systems and fuel, fuel injection, injection and right. so on as that. And 
again, the reason fuel injection came along is because it was a superior system to the old carburetors. And I remember reading about the planes, the fighter planes in World War II. Right, right. And uh, a lot of the German planes had fuel injection on them. The early American planes did not. And those planes could climb stiffer, dive sharper, because they didn't worry about a float bow or float system. The mechanical system of a carburetor. Right. So it gave them a big advantage. Of course, it didn't take the Allies very long to catch on to that. Right. They started employing injection on theirs as well. Well, fuel injection, I guess the biggest change was going from mechanical injection to To electronic injection. Sure. The next biggest change was going from the port injection that we've come to know and love mm-hmm. to direct injection, which is what most cars have today. Right. And the biggest difference, there are several differences, but the biggest single difference in port injection and direct injection, direct injection injects the fuel air mixture directly into the cylinder rather than into the intake port. Mm-hmm. Now that's a subtle change. But what happens is that with port injection, the injector fires and the fuel air just kind of hangs around in the port until the valve opens. When the valve opens, the piston goes down, draws it into the system, compresses it, fires the spark plug, and it goes off. Well, when that is the case, you have two factors, two main factors you can control. One is you can control the spark timing. That Mm -hmm. is exactly when the spark goes off in relation to the other event that's going on, the compression and all that. The second is you can control the valve timing. So you can advance or retard valve timing to get the fuel into the cylinder slightly faster or more more out or so on as that. The thing with direct injection, it's got a nozzle directly in the combustion chamber. So now you can also control fuel delivery precisely. You can blow the fuel to that cylinder exactly at the split second you need it. Not only that, you can vary the amount that enters the cylinder much more precisely, and you can even double fire it if you have to. For Mm -hmm. instance, if you add the right amount of fuel, the cylinder is still not making enough power. It can give it just a tad bit more during the event. Now, what's required with direct injection, you know, regular fuel injection operates somewhere between... 48 to 60 pounds. Yeah, on most modern ones. Some of the old ones were 12 pounds, but 48 to 60 pounds... or lower. Direct injection is up in the thousands of pounds. Correct. Normally around 2,000 pounds or more of pressure. Because, number one, it has to force fuel against the compression of the engine, mm-hmm. not just sitting in a port. The other thing was with port injection, under high usage, that injector may stay open for whole, 60 yeah, degrees. Right. And there's, it could stay open and keep filling that port up. The second valve opened, it was going to suck it in. But it had a long period of time to fill right. that port up. And like I said, on a lot of engines, when you got it wide open, that injector stays open constantly. Sure. It just constantly puts fuel in the cylinder. On direct injection, it doesn't do that. It puts the exact measured amount in there. So that's why it requires a much, much higher pressure in order to deliver a lot more fuel a lot faster. Exactly. But in so doing, they can tune the engine much finer. They can get the emissions better, and they can also get the power where they want it. Let's see, we got time to sneak one more call in. Good morning, Herb. Good morning, y'all. It's my Toyota truck. It has a 430 gears on it. It's a 216 model. And when I'm doing 70, when I was doing 70, it was actually doing a 68. So I got a deal with a fella, and I swapped tires, and mm-hmm. I got missions on there now that I could 
think I can know the number, but out of the top of my head. But anyhow, they're sitting on the ground. They're three inches taller. So I've seemed to have picked up, even though the truck, for the most part, doesn't know anything changed. You know, I get by, the, by a pencil, I get about a mile and a half more per gallon. The inputs you, are different. change the miles, so it's screwing up the calculation. If you go to my website and just type in tire size error, there's a calculator. You can punch in the original tire size. You can punch in yours. It'll tell you exactly how much it's going to be off. It's just that you are showing that you're going faster than you're going, and your miles have changed, so the calculation is now screwed up. Well, well, I was going by the satellite on my phone mm-hmm. on speed, yep. and the amount of gallons I was burning, you know, in that yeah. distance. You know, it just yeah. Well, you just geared it up is all you did. Yeah. yeah. You just changed okay. the rear end ratio in effect because you put a bigger tire on it, but you could do the same exact thing just by driving slower or changing the rear end gear. But, yeah, I mean, if, if it works out for you, it's fine. It, you know, it's going to affect some of the other things on the car, but probably not drastically. Okay. Well, it seems to be a whole lot better. The only time it'll shift down in here in Atlanta is one of the long drags that will yep. drop from six to five. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's just because it's got okay. more load on it because the gear ratio is higher. All right. Okay, all right. so I, I, I'm all right then. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Okay, man. Okay. Thank you all. Thanks, all, all right. Bye-bye. All right, I see we are just about out of time. Got to start winding it on up and getting ready to get on out of here. I'd like to thank all our podcasters for listening this week and every week. Tell your friends, get some more people listening. Go to your favorite broadcast or rebroadcast service and find a written review and fill it out for us. Yeah, and the reason we always ask you to do that is because the way sites work is that the more reviews a particular Positive program reviews. has, the higher it's going to come up in the ratings when you type in, like, auto repair. You come close to the top. And, of course, the ones close to the top get the get most to, clicks exactly. so more people can listen to us. Hey, preceding was opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry. Have a great weekend.